Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. Um, I spent uh, Friday afternoon, Friday all day, really, with my extended family on my mother's side uh, as my grandmother kind of unexpectedly declined in health very rapidly and passed on into eternity. So I'll just ask you, uh, if you could be praying especially for my mom and her family as they grieve, it was a beautiful time. Um, all the siblings, all eight, uh, were able to make it uh, to be there with her. Um, A number, I mean, it's like 16 of us grandkids were in the room. Um, So it was, was, sorrow can be beautiful, you know what I mean? Um, And so we don't want to hide from sorrow and say this is just happiness, but at the same time we can say it's beautiful and it's rich. Um, But if, if you think of them and could pray, uh, for the family, I know that would be appreciated as they walk through grief um, and the funeral this coming week and um, uh, and uh, the end of an era in some ways. It was a reminder to me as we walk through this far country series about how much is at stake when we say this world is not our true home, that this life is not all there is. And as our final breath passes. We enter into a new life for all of eternity, and it hinges on what we do with Jesus. Our eternal existence hinges on what we do with Jesus and his invitation. And so it is a sobering, um, powerful reminder for me of what's going on. Um, So I'm going to open up with some questions for you this morning. What are you willing to risk for? Uh, for what would you sacrifice your comfort, your safety, your security? If a family member's in danger, will you give up your comfort to go and help them or a friend? Would you risk your reputation standing up for somebody who's being mistreated? If a boss asks you to do something that is uh, kind of in the shadows, would you risk losing out on a promotion? Or even having a job to say, I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to violate my conscience. Comfort and conscience kind of hang in the balance often. Which one is more powerful in your life? A little bit of quick review in our Far Country series. Far Country is all about this reminder that this world is not all there is, that we are citizens of a far country, and here we are strangers. Here we are aliens. Here we are, you could be called resident aliens, that God calls us to be here and now and set our sights on there and then, that we are not just here, and yet he wants us to engage, to be in the world, and yet not of the world. And so we've looked at examples coming out of the Bible like Abraham, who's called uh, to leave. He's called to leave. Following God meant leaving. And it meant leaving his possessions, his positions, his dreams, and even relationships. We talked about Moses. Tim Dunn was here. Talked about how God said, I want you to leave, but to leave is different than to go. And I'm also going to call you to go. And as you follow me, I have a place for you to go to. And all along the way, I want you to stop and be reminded to rest in me that this is not about your work, that this is not about your strength, that you will continually submit and and receive the gift of rest in me. Talked about Daniel and 
kind of the polar dangers of either tribalism, which is to kind of cloister ourselves off and block the world out and say, they can do whatever they want. We're just going to hang tight in here and forget them. Uh, that's tribalism versus assimilation, which is to just let the world surround us and become just like the world. And we become whatever temperature the world is. And God calls us to live somewhere between that, that we would neither reject the world nor become like the world, that we would engage the world while remaining distinct and holy and set apart as God calls us to be. We talked about Jeremiah, who even in a foreign land as a stranger and as an exile, still still has the conviction from God to say, seek the blessing where you are. Seek the blessing of your city. Seek the blessing of your community, of your neighborhood. Build homes, plant gardens. You are in it. Own it. Be here. Engage. And yet, you know that you're a stranger. You know that this is not home. Last week, we talked about Jesus, who is our king, who leaves his throne and his kingdom to become a sojourner, to become an exile, so that he can bring the exiles back to the kingdom that he's our king and he's leading the way. He is the way. Today we flip into the book of Acts and we're going to take a look at two men at one point in time who illustrate what it looks like to live in the far kingdom. John and Peter have this moment where we're allowed to see what it looks like uh, to live and look through the lens of the far kingdom. So, uh, the book of Acts is a wonderful journey, uh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful journey. It's, if you have never read the book of Acts kind of straight through, it is, it's the history of the early church. Jesus is killed, he's crucified, then he rises again, and Acts starts with a living again Jesus giving a commission, giving a mission to his followers to say, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to see what I'm doing and I want you to tell what I'm doing. And I want you to do it where you are and kind of in like this ripple effect uh, all over the world. And the spirit comes and his disciples are given a power and a confidence and a boldness that they have never had before. And they stout. They start telling people about Jesus. And it's not just they start arguing and winning the argument. They start telling people about who they've seen and who they've experienced. And they're sharing that with them. And people start believing. And this little band of Christians is growing. And they're doing life together. And they're praying together. And they're learning together more and more and more about Jesus. And the power just keeps growing. And one day, Peter uh, and John are walking to the temple to pray, and they walk by a man who's been paralyzed since birth. And he asks them for money. And they, they have a conversation and say, we, we don't have money, but we have this thing that's better than money. Because they're walking with the Spirit. They're able to offer him healing. And the man surges with a power that he hasn't felt uh, since birth. And he gets up, and he's no longer paralyzed because the Spirit has healed him, and he's jumping around, and he starts screaming about what God is doing in his life. And he's walking with Peter and John, and you can imagine him just kind of like running circles around Peter and John because he's never run in his life, and he's just doing laps around them, and he's screaming to anybody who will listen and even those who won't. Look at what God did to me. And Peter seizes the moment. 
He says, I want people to understand what's going on. I'm going to tell everybody about Jesus right here and right now. Peter opens up and people start believing more and more and more. Now this annoys the religious leaders to no end. They want, they want this shut down yesterday. And they arrest Peter. And they arrest John. And they put him in jail for the night. Now these are the same religious authorities that arrested Jesus. And put him on trial. And had him put to death. Same group of people. Same uh, bunch. And Peter was there. He saw it. And if you remember the story, he's hiding and he's distancing himself. He's even denying Jesus. He's cowering. He's standing back saying, I'm afraid. And yet this time, this time, when he's arrested, when the leaders question him, a new boldness, a new boldness has come over him. The Holy Spirit now has empowered him. And he's able to look at these same authorities that killed Jesus, he's able to look them in the eye and say, Jesus is my highest authority. There's no other authority that offers healing and wholeness and freedom and rescue. And this is where we get to pick up today. So what I'd like to do is read Acts 4 and then focus specifically on verses 13 through 22 uh, and the dialogue that is happening in the second part of their conversation. I want to make some observations, and then I want to um, see what we can do to apply it in pretty practical ways to us today. So this takes place, again, as the man is running around and screaming about Jesus healing him, right after Peter is seized. Uh, Peter has seized the moment, and he's talking about Jesus to everyone around, uh, Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men uh, came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people who were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, I love your word. I love that you are the God of history. I love that we, uh, we follow you because you are true. We follow you because this happened. We follow you because you, you exist beyond all that we know. And when you, when you act, things happen. People are healed People are rescued. People come to life. People become bold. We want to know you. We want to know about this. Father, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and then lives to live it out. Would you help, to hear, help us to hear from you this morning, Jesus? We pray in your name. Amen. So the religious authorities bring Peter and John in because of this public disturbance. And they're not expecting the response they get. They expect them to cower. They expect them to be afraid. And Peter is bold. And they look at him and think, wait. Like he's both common and uneducated. And the word uneducated has this feeling of having no professional training in the law. They're up here with how much they've studied the law, and he's uneducated, and yet he's speaking to them at their level. And he's common. He's common, meaning he has no special professional qualifications. He's got no technical education. He's got no qualifications to, to have this boldness that he does. He was plain. He was a fisherman. And the council's dumbfounded because they think Spiritual authority comes from formal education and having the right religious qualifications. Where's Peter getting his boldness? The source of Peter's boldness is told in verse 8. He says it's, he's filled with the Spirit. That's it. That's his qualification. That's his boldness. Do you know what this means for you? It means that this power cannot be generated from within you. This power comes from the Holy Spirit taking up residence within you. We've been talking about far country having our eyes set on our true home, and we're going to move into a series on mission. Like, God, what would you have us do in the here and now? What would you call us to? And we're going to slide right into a series, an extended series on power, talking about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And I will tell you that you cannot 
do it on your own. This is not about your strength. This is not about your power. This is not generated by you. This is about this Holy Spirit coming in, receiving the invitation and indwelling you. And when that happens, when that happens, a new power surges. It's like a light. I just changed a light, this like a little battery-operated click light in my girl's room, and the batteries are done. And as much as I click and click and click and try and generate and maybe take it out and like rub them together and I'll get like whatever, I need a new power source. And we try so often to do things on our own. And until Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he's a coward. He's a, it, he's a coward. He fails over and over and over and over again. And now he gets a new power source. The Holy Spirit comes on him, and he's different. You know what this also means? You don't need to go to Bible college or seminary or be on staff at a church to talk to people about Jesus, to make a difference for Jesus, to really follow him in your life and to live a life of power in God. The Spirit equips you with everything you need. So while it doesn't come from within you, once he's there, that comes from within. He generates that in you. Sometimes college and seminary actually make people dangerous because people start thinking that they have what it takes on their own. They start trusting in themselves rather than in the spirit, and that makes for the same kind of spiritual illness that the Pharisees had and the Sadducees in that religious day. People start trusting in their pedigree and their education for their power, and they do not always travel in the same vein. So Peter's words have some effect on them, but it's the cured cripple standing before them who's the living proof of what Peter's just said. They can't simply dismiss it. Verse 14 says, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now see, this is a powerful combination. Peter is bold and articulate, and he has living proof standing right there. Now, I think our culture responds to this, that living proof bears more weight than just simply eloquent arguments without such proof. How is your life different because of Jesus? I have seen people get wrapped up in being able to win all the arguments and they remain hollow inside and the power is empty. But when you combine knowledge of God with a life in God, that becomes powerful. That becomes compelling. How is your life different because of Jesus? How are the lives of those around you different because of Jesus? We don't want to just win an argument. We, we want to live a life. Because Peter and John have this combination of bold words and a transformed life. The council is left wondering what to do. They're, they're talking like something incredible has happened and we can't deny it. And the proof is literally standing right in front of them but we don't want this message to spread. 
So let's just stop it. Jesus makes people uncomfortable. Especially people who have found a, a level of personal success. You'll note, the Sanhedrin, the council, they never use Jesus' name. They just say, we want you to stop, you, stop teaching and preaching in this name. Jesus makes people un, uncomfortable. The Pharisees had risen to the top of the ladder, and Jesus had said things like, the kingdom of heaven belongs to little children, and if you don't come like them, you don't belong. You know what Jesus meant by that? It's not about how high up the ladder you climb or how much you've made of yourself. It's about depending on the goodness and the grace of God. Now, this is easy for a kid to accept because kids don't bring much more than cuteness. Most kids. A little story, can I? Micah, when he was two years old, he's three now. He's almost four, so this is way long ago. When he's two... He was really getting into dinosaurs, and he really loved T-Rex, and he would imitate T-Rex, sort of. He would he'd roar, like, Rawr! and then he'd stomp out, I eat grass. <laughs> it kind of kills him. Yeah, buddy, you got some work to do on your toughness. Kids are cute. They don't have a lot to offer. And Jesus says, that's what I want. I want you without anything to offer. Sometimes I think you're cute, I think God thinks, in striving when we really can't offer much. I want you as a little child. God's undeserved grace is easy for a kid, but for someone who has spent their entire life climbing the ladder, doing good, trying to succeed on their own strength, this is actually a slap in the face. Because it says, when it comes to your standing with God, I don't care. I don't care. All of your accomplishments, they mean nothing. When it comes to your standing with God, and yet the invitation is still there. That's a slap in the face. Stop speaking in this name actually means stop speaking under the authority of Jesus. They liked being the authority. And Jesus, his authority challenged theirs. They couldn't deny the proof, though. And so uh, if they had tried to deny it, I think they'd have been ridiculed. People can see him. He's dancing around and screaming. And they know the man. He's 40 years old. They know him. It's not like just some man. They know this guy, and now he's dancing. So instead, they just try to power up. Don't do it. We mean it. Submit to our authority. Verse 17 says, In order that it may spread no further among the people, let's warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now, why do they want it to stop? Or what did they want to stop? You think they wanted to stop miracles? Maybe. But I think, I think there's something more. I think they want to stop all this Jesus talk. They want to stop the gospel. They want, to, they want to stop the good news that everyone is equally undeserving, and yet everyone 
is offered God's love and grace. Everyone is equally undeserving and everyone is equally offered God's love and grace. Do you know that there is opposition to you receiving the gospel? There is opposition to you becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus and a citizen of the far country. Our American culture thrives on the idea of the self-made person. It takes real humility to recognize that you are in need. In the same way, I think there's opposition to you sharing the gospel. There's opposition coming from our world to you sharing with other people about how they could become followers and disciples of Jesus and citizens of the far country. Our culture more and more is taking the stance, well, believe what you want, but just don't talk about it. Just keep it quiet. I know students who have been scolded in elementary school for talking about God and saying, we don't talk about God in school. That's not a rule. You might not under the authority that you have to submit to, but I'm a kid and I can talk about God. But they're told not to. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The only problem is that Peter and John have no intention of stopping. Verse 19 and 20, but Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. God or human beings, whom does one obey? Peter and John don't fail to recognize the authority of the religious leaders, but they will not surrender their consciences to such authorities. In a similar way, Socrates once said, I respect you, but I will obey God rather than you. One commentator wrote, the real secret of Christianity relies in the great tribute once paid to John Knox. He feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. So let's get real practical. And I think this gets a little bit sticky. Peter and John have basically just said no to a direct order from worldly authorities. They have disobeyed the state. This is what we could call civil disobedience. And I think it's a sticky issue. Because many of us are really good at just being rebels. Many of us, it doesn't take much for us to rebel. Submitting to authorities, I think, doesn't tend to be our strong suit. Right? Submission is kind of a swear word. Often I think it's just wrong how we uh, see ourselves uh, not under authority. Romans tells us that God himself has put authorities in place and we are to submit to them. We don't get to rebel just because we don't like something or disagree with something else. But we also have to recognize that God is our ultimate authority. And so... If a friend or a family member or a boss or a pastor or a government authority tells us to do something that is in opposition to what God tells us to do, our allegiance is ultimately to our ultimate authority. 
So what do we do as Christians when it comes to civil disobedience? I want to talk real plainly, real simply. When it comes to disobeying earthly authorities, if you feel like you are in a position to disobey earthly authorities, this would be, uh, I think, a good means of operating. First, have a message or command from God that cannot be questioned. Examples of this are all throughout the Bible. Like the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, when Pharaoh says, I want you to kill all the little boys under two, and they say, no, 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 that's, that's not how God operates. We're going to disobey that order. And they saved the boys. Daniel, when the king orders a law, he says, you can't pray to anyone but the king. Daniel says, actually, I don't pray to anyone but God. So I'm going to keep on praying. You do what you will. Come what may, I'm going to keep praying. So he did it anyway. Even though it meant he would get thrown to the lions. And he did. The three young men in Daniel were told to bow down to the golden image of the king, and they refused, even though doing so would mean getting thrown into a furnace, and they were. And right here, Peter and John are told not to talk about Jesus. And Jesus has just commissioned them to see and tell. And they said, we're going to do it anyway. And it's not to be rebels. It's not to spit in the face of authority. But it was because they knew who their ultimate authority was. They did it anyway, even though it would cost them. Don't just rebel against authority because you think differently. Children, obey your parents. Even if you think your curfew is way too early, you're not disobeying God by coming home on time. Right? Students, I would say, do your assignments, even if if you think they're worthless, or even if you think they deal with a subject matter that you have a problem with. You're not disobeying God by turning your work in. And if a subject of a paper is one you disagree with, do it anyway. You're not disobeying God by applying, uh, you're not disobeying God by applying intellectual thought to a subject and doing your homework. Pay your taxes. Follow the law. Submit to authorities. Unless they tell you to do something that violates what God has told you to do. Submit unless it disobeys God in doing so. Second, check to make sure that God's authority is making its way into all of your life and not just the convenient places where you want to rebel. Your argument is as strong as your integrity. Seek to have your whole life be consistent in following God. If people see you playing a God card in one hand and completely dismissing him in another, you know what they will call you. Probably rightfully so. Later in life, Peter will write this in 1 Peter 2.12. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. If you're going to disobey an earthly authority, check to make sure that you're being consistent in following God's authority. This doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that you can't pick and choose where you want to obey God. 
It's not about what's most convenient for you. Often, when obeying God means disobeying earthly authorities, life gets more difficult. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, even Peter and John. If it's about your comfort, it's likely shallow. (laughs) Seek God's authority in all of your life. Third, do it with respect. Obeying God and disobeying earthly authorities does not give you permission to be a jerk. In 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter talks about always being ready to talk about Jesus, but doing it with gentleness and respect. Peter and John are examples of this as they stand before the council. They're bold and they're defiant and they're respectful. They say, you decide. If you think we deserve punishment, so be it. You do your job. We'll follow Jesus. Come what may. He is our ultimate authority. They're not shady and they're not secretive. They don't call names and they don't heap insults. Following God does not give us permission to dishonor people, either to their face or online. Gentleness and respect, truth and love, those, I think, are to be our guides or our guardrails if you think of going down a roll, a road so that we don't just go careening off into a ditch. This doesn't mean that you're not allowed to say hard things. This doesn't mean that you cannot or even should not strive for change in a broken world. This doesn't mean you can't take a knee. This doesn't mean that you should not fight for the dignity or the equality of others. It means that in this fight, respect will be valued. So ask the questions. Does this violate a clear command from God? Am I inviting God's authority in all of my life, or am I doing this just out of convenience? Even in my disobedience, am I giving respect? The council tells them to stop talking about Jesus, and they say, we cannot, but, we cannot help but speak what we have seen and heard. They have seen the risen Jesus, and they have heard him tell them to share it. Be my witnesses. They have been eyewitnesses, and they have been earwitnesses, and they refuse to be silenced. So with due respect, they boldly defy the authorities. And here's one, one closing thought. Peter gets a do-over. Sequence is important in the Gospels. Writers write on purpose. And the last time Luke presented a trial by the Sanhedrin, it was Jesus being arrested. And what was Peter doing? He's hiding. He's cowering. And now he's been emboldened. What changed? John 21, I think, has a catalytic conversation. So Jesus dies, and Peter goes back to living how he used to. He's given up. And he's out fishing one day, and he sees the risen Jesus on the beach. 
And maybe all of that time with Jesus goes surging through the head and he doesn't even wait for the boat to pull up on shore. He like dives out and he swims and it says they have breakfast on the beach. Jesus makes him breakfast and they have a meal. And that conversation, Jesus has a penetrating conversation with Jesus. With, uh, Peter and Jesus have this penetrating conversation where Jesus pokes and he says, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. I just spent three years with you. And like, I gave up everything. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you really love me? No, I guess, I guess it's not where the goal is. It's fascinating. I don't know Greek, but I can look at the Greek words here. And when Jesus says, do you love me? He's using one word. And Peter says, yes, I I this kind of love, and it's a lesser. Do you agape me? And he says, yes, I phileo you. Do you love me unconditionally? Yes, I love you like a brother. Do you love me like this? Yes, I, do you love me? Yeah. And it's a piercing, penetrating conversation. And Peter sees what could be different. And he's picked up out of his failure by Jesus. That conversation, combined with the spirit coming and indwelling changes everything. So he's empowered and he's moved and Jesus commands him, be my witness. And now he's in. It's as if Peter now sees so clearly what life is about. Jesus is alive and because he is, I, I can come fully alive. He's charged me with not shrinking back, with telling people about it. If you have shrunk back from telling people about Jesus, if you have shrunk back from living your life following God, you are in good company. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Peter shows that even the great ones of faith have had sorry moments, paralyzed by fear. And Peter also shows us that's not the end of the book. A new chapter can be written. If you've been paralyzed by fear in the past, find encouragement in this. Move forward in confidence and remember that Jesus is with you. You don't have to have a spirit of fear. So, may we have the same kind of faith and boldness that causes us to follow God with everything we have. May we live lives transformed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. May we see and hear God so that we can show and tell others of him. And may we recognize and submit to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ in our lives that allows us to live with faith and boldness and respect and conviction in every area of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we want to be here. We want to engage in this world. We want to live in this world and yet not sink down to just being of the world. There are times when, there are times when we come face to face with the brokenness of the world, with broken relationships and broken institutions and broken systems, and we wonder, how do we navigate this? And you tell us not to be afraid. And you tell us we need to submit, that ultimately we submit to you and we have a boldness and a confidence that comes from you. Come what may in the here and now, 
we follow you. Help us to be people who submit to you, who are empowered by you, who stand for you and live our lives showing and telling others about you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.